All right, Brother Patrick. We're going to read Psalm 3. Come on. You come. Stay right here. She can rest your Bible. I'll tell you what, I'll even sit beside you so you're not by yourself. All right. Tell them what to turn to. Psalm 3. All right. Brother Mike needs to be able to hear you back there. Psalm 3. Psalm 3. Very good. Now, before we read, you want to tell them a little bit about what this psalm is about? What's the backstory? David fleed from his son. Absalom. Absalom. Absalom a nice fellow? No. What is he trying to do? Kill his father. Kill his father? I mean, that's kind of problematic, don't you think? Yeah, is he going to do it by himself? Nope. What did he do? He raised up an army. He raised up an army. Was he public about it? Nope. How'd he do it? Secretly. In secret. But what's going on now? It's open. It's become open. They've made their move. Who are they coming for? David. And what does David have to do? Flee. Flee from what? His own kingdom. His own castle? His palace? His capital city, which is... Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So the king is having to flee for his life. Life. Is that a big deal? Yeah. yeah. Does that make a little bit difference in how we read this psalm? Yes. Yes. Brother Richard, he's got the microphone if you want to put on your ears. I can hear you. You can hear him. Good. I can hear you better. Good. All right. Start. Go ahead and read verse 1. Lord... How are they increase that trouble me? Many are they that rise rise up against me. Verse two, two. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. Right? Alright, what is he talking about? Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? What's he mean? So the number of his enemies are getting bigger. Whoa. I mean, you're the king, and these folks have been your loyal subjects, or so you thought. And here they are, following behind your own son, ready to kill you. A lot more. Many are they that rise up against me. What's that mean? It means they're rising up against them to kill him. Yeah, that's, that's bad. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. What does that mean? They're saying that there's no help for him because we're so strong, nobody can stop us. But God can, and they don't know it. Yeah. So when it says Selah, what's that mean? It means pause and think about it. Yeah. So verses 1 and 2, that's some pretty bad situation, right? 
There's a bunch of them. They're getting bigger, and they're saying God can't even help them. They're saying that about David, right? Mm -hmm. Woo! What did David do? He fled. He did flee. And but in verse 3 it says, But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of my head. What does that mean? It means when he fights battles, you hang your head when you're beaten, but you rise it up when you win. Okay, so right, lifting up your head in victory, who does the lifting? God. God. What's the shield mean? He, he protects him. So he protects him. He's his glory. He lifts up David's head in victory. Who gets the credit in all the battle? God. God, right? So who's he crying unto? The Lord. The Lord. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. Did God hear his prayers? Yes. Yeah. Selah. What's that mean? It means pause and think about it. Chew on that. It's bad, but the Lord heard me. And who's the one who gives the battle? Who gives the victory? God. God. That's right. I laid me down and slept, and I awakened, for the Lord sustained me. What was David able to do? Sleep without worrying that somebody will come in and kill him. Even in the midst of all that, he's still able to rest at night. He didn't have to lay down and fret. Because who's his shield? The Lord. The Lord. Who's sustaining them? The Lord. What's it mean to sustain? To protect and keep and guard, right? Yeah. Okay. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. It's not just a ten thousand unit. That's all right. If we got a battalion of ten thousand over here and ten thousand over here and ten thousand over here, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. That's a pretty bold claim, isn't it? Yes. Why can David say that he's not going to be afraid even though there's ten thousands encamped around him? Because the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. He's the shield. He's his glory. He's the lifter up of his head. I will not be afraid. So verse 7 says, Arise, O Lord, and save me. O my God. What's he pleading? That the Lord would save him. And what's it mean to save him? To rescue. To rescue, to deliver, that's right. For thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone, thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Is this talking about right now or the past? The past. The past. All, David's been in a lot of battles. But what has, he, what has the Lord done to David's enemies? Broken their teeth. Broken their teeth, smitten them upon the cheekbone. You ever seen a boxing match? Nope. No, okay. You ever seen you, you ever you ever pretended to box? Yeah. Yeah. Alright. Well if you land a right hook so hard that the fella's teeth knock out, where's his face tend to be after that? On the dirt. On the dirt, right? <laughs> You're saying the Lord has broken David's enemies so hard it's like he busted them upon the cheek and their teeth flew out from the blow. That's a pretty big win, right? So the Lord's able to knock him out, and so he's asking, Do that again, Lord, arise and save me. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. What's that mean? It means everything belongs unto the Lord. Everything does. And if David's going to be saved, who's going to be doing the saving? The Lord. The Lord. And what does salvation mean? That everything is the Lord. But what does the word salvation mean? You said it a minute ago. I just wanted to repeat it. <laughs> rescue. Right? Oh. Yeah, rescue. Yes. Rescue belongs to the Lord. 
Thy blessing is upon thy people. Who's the Lord blessing upon? His people. Does he have a people? Yes. Absolutely. Who's he going to deliver? His people. Salvation belongs unto the Lord. You know who else said that? Jonah. Right? He was in the belly of the well, and he realized that salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? Salvation is of the Lord. Selah. What's that mean? Stop and think about that. We're, you know, can y'all imagine a much more worst-case scenario? And yet, who does he go back to focus to over and over and over again? The Lord. The one who is able to deliver. The one who's delivered in the past. The one who's got a blessing upon his people. Who's worthy of being trusted. So here, even in the midst of all that, able to sleep at night. Well done, sir. Good job. Brother Dean, why don't you lead us in order? <coughs> Father, we thank you for this day for its many blessings. The opportunity we have to gather in your house, Lord, to offer up our voices and praise and honor. We hear your word for Father, we thank you for those who are gathered here with us. Father, we thank you for their love and their faithfulness. We thank you for the prayers that they offer on our behalf. And we just pray that you would be with them. Father, that you would make your presence known here this morning in a very uh, great and powerful way. Father, we thank you for these dear little children, Father, that you have, that you have blessed with your word and, your, and the knowledge of you. Lord, we just pray that they will continue to grow in your knowledge, grow in their faith. Father, we pray that we would be able to, to help and guide them along the way. Bless us in being able to do that. Bless us in being an example for it. Most of all, Father, we're thankful to be able to say this morning that salvation is of the Lord. Mm -hmm. We know that it is all of you, Father. There is nothing good in us except that that has been given to us by you. Yeah. Father, we pray that as we go through this life, Father, that we can walk in a way that would be examples to others. Father, that they might see us and want to know you. Bless us, Father, when we fall short of that. Forgive us of our sins and our shortcomings. And Father, we ask that you give us a greater love one to another. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Amen. Last week we explored the topic of total depravity. Remember the simple definition we were working from? Man is totally corrupt and estranged from God. That's our starting point. And we looked at when does that start from us? From the very earliest moment of conception. We have sinners as parents. That means they can only produce sinners. Right? We are sinners. And that is our condition and requires God to <coughs> deliver us from that condition for anything to change. And so my question to start with this morning was, who? Who does God deliver from that condition of being totally corrupt and estranged? The answer is simple. 
his people. Matthew 1.21. The angel tell Joseph that Jesus was coming for, told his, Mary, his mother Mary that she should bring forth a son, and Joseph, you're going to call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So the big question is, who does God deliver from being totally corrupt and estranged? His people. The ones that his father gave him. All right, well, that brings up two more questions. Who are his people? And maybe more importantly, how did they become his people? Okay. Question one, who are his people? Go to Revelation 7 and 9. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. Who are his people is the question. And y'all, we live in a blessed time that this answer is plain. That was not always the case. For much of the Old Testament, there was the perception that the only people the Lord had were the natural nation of Israel, who were the descendants of one man named Abraham. But it's been made plain now, with the full completing of Scripture, that it's broader than just that. And it even clarifies that not everyone who was naturally born of Abraham is part of God's family. They're not all his people. So in chapter 7 and verse 9, it says, After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, and saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and to the Lamb. Who are they giving credit to salvation? Who? Right? God. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord, and that's what we'll give credit for. And so this is a description of His people. A great multitude which no man could number. Now men think they're pretty smart, right? Has anybody given a head count for the stars yet? No. There haven't been any more created since the day it was founded. <laughs> but we, as smart as we think we are, still ain't got an accurate count of them. Same concept here. There's a definitive number of stars. They're not getting more. They're not getting less. They're there. And God knows how many, and He knows their names. Same thing here. There's a great multitude so much that no man can number it. Does God have a people? Yeah. Absolutely. Is it just a few little special people that are just, you know, you know? No. It's a great multitude. So much so that no man could number it. Okay? So let's, let's start getting rid of that distortion. People who uh, hear about God having a people... We'll try to say, well, you're just saying just a few. God only saved a few. Jesus only saved a few. That's not what the scripture says. A great multitude. Now, is God a respecter of persons? Does it matter 
what nation you live in, what color of your skin, what language you speak. Any of those things matter? No. You are no better and you are no worse. Because out of every nation and kindred, every, every family, so within nations you got subgenres, right? We got Southerners and we got Yankees. We're all Americans. We're very different, right? Out of all groups of people, regardless of how you break them up, God has His people. Out of every uh, people and out of every tongue, right? God is not a respecter of persons. He has His people, great number, and as diverse as you can imagine. And every single one of them is given a gift here in this life. It's a gift of new life, a new birth, to be born from above. And included in that is a gift of faith. Who are his people? His people are those that are or will be born again, given spiritual life, by God, and they will be given faith. Though when you're first conceived and often born and often grow up, you look and act just like the world. Because you're totally depraved, right? You're completely corrupt. The things that you want are corrupt. They are contrary to God. And in fact, you're in a state of hatred towards Him. Okay, that's, that's how you start. Any change in that is because of God interceding, okay? And so at some point in the life, God will intercede in His people and change them. Take out that heart of stone. Word picture there. How feeling is a heart of stone? Right? Doesn't, doesn't feel at all, right? It's, it's dead, inert rock, right? And puts in there a heart of flesh, one that you can love the Lord, desire the Lord, seek Him. Right? And that's what happens. That you have a change within that goes from hatred and hostility to love and a desire to please and serve. Okay? That's his people. A large number out of every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. And the characteristic is at some point in their life, there's going to be a change. That can happen very, very early. John the Baptist, he was filled with the Holy Ghost from the womb. He was leaping for joy when he heard the voice of Mary. He's still in the baby, in, in, in the belly, right? A baby in the belly. That's about you know pretty young as we could identify from Scripture. And then you've got a thief nailed to a cross beside Jesus. Lived a life of wickedness, making fun of Jesus as he's hanging there dying in the same condition. And then at some point during that, there's a change. And he recognizes Jesus as the master and asks him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Right? What made that change? God. Holy Spirit. His people. He is going to give them a new heart and he's going to write his laws in their heart and he is going to make them different. Okay? So that's what 
the category of who are his people, it's very broad, right? Can you and I know with certainty, just looking out as we're interacting with folks? No. But you can't write off people based on how they look or how they speak or where they're from or what kind of clothes they wear. Those are all things that are irrelevant. Nor can you write off people who are still acting like the world. Because until the Lord changes a heart, until the Lord changed my heart, that's exactly where you and I were. Okay? Now, perhaps the more important question for us today how did they become his people? God delivers his people from this state of being totally corrupt and estranged. Estranged, there's a separation between God and them. He delivers them from that, saves them from that, rescues them from that. If it's for his people, how did they become his people? And this is what typically separates us from most groups. Because the answer that we give is very simple. God chose them. How did they become his people? God chose them. Go to Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 4. And again, just like last time, there are many places that we could go to. I'm going to go to the plainest, simplest, most straightforward scriptures to try and teach these lessons. How did they become his people? How did they become God's people? God chose them as our answer. Verse 4, and the subject of this um, sentence starts in verse 3, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father. So we're talking about Father God, our Heavenly Father. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Who did the choosing? Yes. He. <laughs> Who's the he? God. And generally it's attributed to God the Father. According as God the Father hath chosen us in him. Flip over to 1 Peter. Chapter 2 and in verse 9. It's right after Hebrews, 1 Peter, chapter 2, and in verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That doesn't mean you're strange. We are strange, but particular, specifically chosen, selected, the particular people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You were chosen. And then at some point in your life, he called you out of darkness and into light. He did 
the choosing. I say this repeatedly because this is important. God did the choosing. When? If you go back to Ephesians 1 and 4, accordingly as He hath chosen us, His people, in Him before the foundation of the world. Well, what, what does that mean, foundation of the world? Well, the day that the universe was created, there had already been a selection made. He had already chosen a people for himself that he gave to his son before the world was formed, before the universe was made, before let there be light, before let dry land appear, before there were sun and moon and stars and animals and plants and people, he had already chosen. Okay? And do you know what happened when the world was founded? Here's a lawyer term. That decision was memorialized. Oh, that's a big word. It means he wrote it down. Revelation chapter 17 and in verse 8. Now there is going to be a lot going on in this that I won't get into, but the point I want you to pull from it is that there are going to be a group of people at the end, who are going to be deceived by something. And why they're deceived, it says it's because their names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. There is something called the Lamb's Book of Life. This is where God took the names of His people whom He chose and He wrote it down. It says, from the foundation. And chose before the foundation. From means... From the beginning, when the universe was created, including that that was a book where he wrote down your name. This is not just a general, my people, one line entry. This is a list that can't be counted by man out of every kindred, nation, tribe, tongue that the Father said, these are mine. I am bestowing my love upon them. And he wrote it down. It was recorded. It was memorialized. Right? In nursing, if you don't write it down, it didn't happen. right? Well, God does it. It still happens. But he wrote it down. And that list isn't amended. You don't get added to that list later. Right? You don't become a child of God some point in your life. You are a child of God. You are one of his people from before the world was even. Because He chose you then. If you want to argue with me, I don't care. Argue with Scripture. No, it's not wise. But this is what Scripture says. He chose His people before the foundation of the world. And at the foundation of the world, He wrote it down by their names. So, how do you become a child? You became a child back then, before the world was even formed. That's when he selected his people. Now, did he choose them because they were worthy? No. 
heavy emphasis on no. All of humanity, man, woman, child, young and old, who has ever lived, are all equally unworthy. We spent a whole sermon last time talking about that. Completely and totally corrupt. Your desires, your mind, your heart, your mouth, your feet, your hands, everything about you is corrupt. If that offends you, tough. It's still true. And you are completely estranged and separated from God. God did not look at this mass of humanity and say, yeah, that one's good, and that one's good, and that one's good, and the rest, eh. No. There is none good. No, not one. There is none that seeketh after God. They have all gone out of the way. Go to Romans chapter 5. Talk about clear, clear passages. Romans chapter 5. Verses 6 and 7. And this is refuting the notion that they were somehow worthy, somehow good. Romans 5, we'll start in verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, not little strength, zero strength. We had zero strength. Without strength, in due time, Christ died for the worthy, for the good enough, for the good boys and girls, for the ungodly. Totally corrupt. He died for the ungodly. You and I. This is not them way over there. This is you and I and every other child of God who's been born again and can see that they are ungodly. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die. Yet peradventure, for a good man, some would die. But God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ died for us 2,000 years ago. When did God commend his love towards us? When he chose us. Before the foundation of the world. How long has God been loving you? Since before the hills were. I ever had somebody, you're as old as the hills. God's loved me since before there were hills. And every single one of his people. That's how long he's been loving you. He commended us to when we were yet sinners. We weren't worthy. Okay? This is important. He loved us when we were yet sinners. We were out strength. If you go back to Ephesians in chapter 2, it says he loved us when we were still dead in Sins. All right, that's another way of saying totally corrupt, completely estranged from him, dead in sins. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins. Did God start loving you when you cleaned up your life? No. Guess what? One, you can't clean up your life. And two, he didn't start loving you then. He didn't start loving you at any time during your life. 
He loved you and all of his people from before the beginning. Right? When you were dead in sins, he still loved you and hath quickened us together with Christ, for by grace, by grace are ye saved, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. Now, we could go to verses 1 through 3 here of Ephesians chapter 2 and and get a reminder about what it looks like to be dead in sins. What, what state did He pull us out of when we were dead spiritually? In times past, at some point in our life, this is what we were doing, walking like the world, the pattern of the world, the path of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That means they're following Satan's example and we were following right along with it. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. What, what's the hallmark of being totally corrupt? You're rebelling against God and you're disobeying and you don't care. Among whom we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and desires of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That was our nature. That's what he's delivered us out of. Were you worthy for him to say, yeah, I want that one because they're so good? No. So in a way, he chose you in spite of you. He knew you. He knows you better than you know yourself. Right? We can put on rose-colored glasses when it comes to ourselves. Well, I'm not really so bad. But if you see yourself like God sees you, you will know from the head to the foot we're corrupt. Nothing good. Except for the good that he is placed in upon us now and then born again and have a desire to please and all that comes from him but he knows the sins that we engage in in our mind and in our hearts alright I want you to flip back to Romans chapter 9 Romans chapter 9 because this is where the rubber meets the road right God chose a people he did it before they've done anything and yet he's choosing from a group of sinners how can you then explain God's decision to choose some and not others? That's really what folks struggle with. It may be something that you struggle with. How can you explain God's decision to choose some and not others? Go to Romans chapter 9. We're going to start reading about verse 10. And it's going to start with an example of a time when God chose one and not another. And naturally, he chose the character who was the bigger sinner. And we're talking, of course, about when Rebecca, who after being barren for 20 years, finally has babies, and now she's got twins, and there's a battle going on in her womb, so much so that she's scared and goes to ask God, say, what's going on in here? And God gives her an answer and says that there are two nations within you fighting. Can you imagine a sibling fighting so bad inside that you've got to go ask the Lord what's going on? And he tells her, the younger shall serve the elder. Now, is that normally how it would work out? Normally, the oldest brother, he'd be... The one who's in charge, he'd get daddy's more of his inheritance. He'd be kind of, you know, top dog. And God's telling no. The younger is going to serve the elder. So Jacob is going to be the younger brother. Is Jacob a nice boy? No, he's a little shyster. All right? He and his mama are going to connive to get his way. All right? But even though that's what he's going to do, God has still chosen him and not Esau, the older brother. 
It says, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil. They haven't come out and started living their lives yet. They're both sinners, but he chose one and not the other, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. Not of works, but of him that calleth. So here you have what God did in choosing the people on the big scale, shrunk down to a small scale. Just between these two twin boys, God chose one. It was his choice. Whose choice was it? Was it mama's? Was it the baby's? It was God's. Before they'd done anything in their lives, he chose one. So according to election, God's choice, he made a selection. Let's put it that word. God made a selection of one and not the other, not by their works, but of him that calleth. Who's it go back to? God's choice, his purpose. It was said unto her, this is what the prophecy that was given to her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, this is elsewhere in Malachi 1, 2, and 3. You don't have to search for it. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. The older brother Esau, says God hated him. And the younger one he chose to love. Okay? God made that choice. Out of two sinners, he chose to love one and not the other. Your question is, well, how do you explain this? Well, this is, this, is, this is the scenario. It still feels hard to explain. Let's keep going. What shall we say there? Is there unrighteousness with God? Can you accuse God of being unrighteous for choosing to love some sinners and not others? The Scripture says, God forbid that you would say that. Hold your tongue. That's not something that you have the ability or right to say. Okay? That is accusing the perfect and holy God of doing wrong. Okay? God forbid that you say that. For, here's a reason, for he said to Moses, quoting Exodus 33:19, he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will comp have compassion. So then it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Election is about God making a choice about who he's going to show mercy on. And he has the right to select whom he will. He showed mercy in Moses' day on a nation of Israel. Did he show any mercy on Egypt? Not a lick. <coughs> Was it because Israel was so good? No, in fact, he told him it wasn't. It's not because y'all are great and mighty or wonderful. It's because you're, you're least. You're low. But he chose to put his love upon them because it's not of what they were doing. It's not what their will. That means what did they desire. It's not their choice. It's not because of how they worked, which means by runneth, not the things that they did or their deeds, but rather it was from him. His choice but of God that showeth mercy. It's God's choice. He has the right to make a distinction between a bunch of unequal or equally unworthy sinners. He tells them, verse 17, For Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee. He raised up Pharaoh 
so God could show his power against him, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore he will have mercy on him who have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Right? To make stubborn. Right? Naturally, Pharaoh may have wanted to bail before it got so bad. But the Lord was going to have the full display of his power and wrath on Egypt. He wasn't going to be get shortchanged. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Well, then why does God get mad at any sinners, right? Who can, basically it's trying to blame sin on God. And there are some folks who go that far where they say that, well, God not only chose a people here, he also chose this people to go to hell. Right? That's one of the main distinctions between us and John Calvin. Why are we not Calvinists? There are many reasons. But one is he believed in what's referred to as double predestination, that God predetermined that his people would go to heaven. He also predetermined that these other people would go to hell. We don't believe Scripture teaches that. We believe that we were all equally bound and deserving of hell. We were all sinners bound for hell. God didn't have to do anything for us to be worthy of that. We were sinners by nature. That's where we were fitted for. We were set up for that at, on our own. Right? God is not the author of sin. He did not cause Adam to sin. He didn't cause sin to come into the world. Right? We deserve that on our own. Whether it's by our figurehead Adam and then while we're born, every time we add to it. But from that, we believe God took a people and delivered them with grace, right? Unmerited favor. He chose them, and he was going to do what was required to deliver them, to rescue them from being totally corrupt and estranged. Was the opposite of being estranged? Close at hand. You know, the, the estranged one is far away at arm's distance or, or farther. This one is close in the bosom, hugged tight. Dearly loved. Okay? But there are some things that had to happen before we became worthy of being close to the Father. Okay? Nay, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing form say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? There you go. How can you explain God's decision to choose some and not others? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? That's the world. That's every carnal person. That's every sinner who's ever lived. God could... The wages of sin are what? Death. Death. One sin in your life, he could end you then. Right? Just, righteous. But rather, with much long-suffering, he prolongs it over your whole life and allows creation to continue on until you're going to get to a climax at the very end where his wrath, in the form of the great white throne, is going to be on display where he is going to have a judgment come down. Oh, those shirts that say, only God can judge me. Oh, what a scary thing to write. Because God will judge you, and you will not like it if the blood of Jesus has not already been there and paid that debt. He's willing to show his wrath the same way that he raised up Pharaoh and this powerful nation and army so that he could show 
I will bring down vengeance upon all its wickedness and sinful. And it will be a mighty display. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he hath afore prepared unto glory. Vessels of wrath are already fitted up. Right? They were made for it. They were default. That was where they were at. The vessels of mercy, God interceded. He prepared them. He made them different so that they would be ready unto glory so that He could demonstrate the measure of His mercy. This riches, this superabundance of riches that He has in store. It's going to be displayed by the deliverance of His people. Right? So he afore prepared. He had ordained it before. And you know what? It's his right to make that choice. Okay? It is God's right as the sovereign to make this choice. We won't use that word sovereign, right? You know the, the main uh, word within sovereign, the reason it's spelled so funny? The word reign is in there. A ruler has the right to reign. He makes the decisions, he makes the choices. Who outranks the sovereign? Nobody. Nobody outranks God. So he has the right to make this distinction. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, I want you to look at the emphasis on whose will is being performed. <coughs> Ephesians 1, 4, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, he did the choosing, of his people before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like no longer corrupt and no longer estranged because you're with him and you're holy and there's no blame or charge that can be laid upon you. Having predestinated us, he's predetermined something. He's marked it out in advance. This will happen. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the avenue that it had to happen by. He's the one who made it happen to himself. Adoption of children to God the Father himself. That's why you can cry, Oh, Heavenly Father, in your prayers, because he's adopted you to himself. Why? According to the good pleasure of his will. Does your Heavenly Father have a will? You better believe it. Is it going to be accomplished? You better believe it. How did he make a distinction? According to his will. It pleased him to do so. Jump down to verse 11. Just for the sake of time. In whom we also have obtained an inheritance. You know, that's talking about heaven. That's the inheritance. Be with him in glory. Being predestinated according to the purpose of him. Still God. Who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Well, I just don't like what God chose. Well, it just does not matter. <laughs> You're not sovereign. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. He chose to do it. And guess what? He wasn't obligated to love any of you or me. We weren't worthy of love. We were yet sinners. We were ungodly. We were without strength. And he loved you anyway. And it's not just a few of you. He loved a whole bunch. And not because we you know, were born in the right class or the right time or had the right skin color. Out of all of those, 
He chose his people. Out of all equally unworthy folks, he chose his people and put his love upon them. And they are going to be in his family, adopted in, and made worthy by Jesus Christ, by his work. All right? If you want a mini summary on how he prepared them, right? He afore prepared them unto glory. How did he do that? Go to Romans 8, 28 and 30. It's a, it's a great summary. A lot you can unpack. I won't have time. Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Now, who's going to love God? God? Those that God already loves. You're totally depraved. Your estranged state does not love God. And you can't change that unless God, who's already loved you, changes you, and then you love God. So this is only talking about His people. Those that love God, to them who are called according to whose purpose? His purpose. His will. For whom He did foreknow. He knew in advance. And that just does not mean I, I knew of their existence. God knows everybody. Right? But he knew and he regarded them with special favor and love. Right? When did that special favor and love? When he chose them. <laughs> Before the foundation of the world. He knew them and knew them in a way that's intimate and love. Loved. He loved them. He foreknew them. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. He predetermined in advance that there was going to be something about them. Right? They were going to be conformed to the image of his son. Well, what image do you start with? Well, the image of Adam, which is corrupt. Totally corrupt and completely estranged from God. Well, you're going to be conformed being holy and without blame before God in love. That's the image of Jesus Christ, pure and holy and with God and being loved by God and loving God. That's, that's really good. He determined that in advance because he'd been loving you before then, right? He loved you. And he determined, this is what my people are going to end up like. Conform to the image of his son, that he may be the firstborn of many brethren. Moreover, not only that, we have, what are these all things, right? The big picture, all things, here we go. Those he predestinated, he also called, right? He just didn't leave you in ignorance about what he's done your whole life. He calls you out of darkness and into life and gives you that gift of faith. And new life, right? You have spiritual life. The Father wants people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. You cannot worship God unless the Holy Spirit has already come into you. Alright? Moreover, whom He did preest, He also called. And then He called, He also justified. He declares them to be just. By Christ's work, they were justified on the cross. When you're born again, you discover, God justified me! And when you start living a life that is obedient to God, people around you can see that's one of Jesus's. Jesus has paid for that one. Right? Justified and seen uh, abroad that you've been made just. Whom he justified them, he also glorified. Now this is, this is a work that's still ongoing because have you been completely glorified yet? No. There's a better day coming. Right? Your best day here in life. You think about what was my favorite day, whatever. It's piddling compared to the day that is coming. When you are completely glorified, when you are conformed to the image of the Son and you're given a glorified body when He returns and there's a resurrection of every single one of His people. Well, there's a resurrection of everybody. But for His people, it's a sweet, 
sweet, sweet day. 31, what should we say then? To these things, if God be for us, who can be against us? I mean, it's just a ludicrous assertion. God's already done all this. What can you do? What can the world do? What can I do against this great God? Not a thing. So how did he prepare for glory? He did all this. I mean, this is the summary of all things. Preachers want to argue. Is that all things include only these or is this? God is great and he is mighty. And these are the things that are enumerated and specific. And these are really, really the most important things. We can get really bent out of shape on a bunch of little things. These great things are true. And because things, these, these things are true, you've got stability. You've got a ballast. You have a God who's done great and mighty things for you, and He's not going to leave you. right? He's been loving you, knowing what you were. Is He going to change? Is God ever going to stop loving you? I'm sure it says loved. Is He ever going to stop? Why would He stop? You're not going to surprise Him. He loved you, even when you were a sinner, even when you are ungodly. Now, does that mean continue to do the wrong thing? You know it to be wrong. You're born again. You, you can do the wrong thing when you're born. You're capable. But the Lord will smite you. And I mean that in the sense of in your heart, with conviction, sometimes in outward chastening. If you continue, if your heart becomes hardened and you're just doing the wrong thing over and over again, you're never going to enjoy it the same way you did when you were dead. But He'll get you. Because He loves you. As a loving father loves a child, he will continue to be with you and not leave you um, just wandering down that path. All right. Now, in everything that we've talked about, God has been the acting party. Okay? And his people have been passive. And I want us to think about why this has to be true. All right. Any of y'all like crime shows? I don't really like them. But there's an illustration from it, and maybe it'll help you learn. All right. Crime shows. Detectives trying to figure out the case, right? They ask three questions. Well, did the person have the means, the motive, and the opportunity? I can remember that. Means, motive, and opportunity. Well, what's means means? Means. Was that individual capable of performing the act? Capability, right? Or ability. Motive. Is this something that person would have desired? Would they want to do that? Opportunity. Did the person have a chance to do it? Means, motive, opportunity. All right, so let's give an absurd illustration. All right? You have a toy poodle. You love that toy poodle. You have an elderly lady who lives next door. She loves cats. She hates dogs. Now, this elderly lady, she's in her 90s. She's wheelchair-bound. And it just so happens she's been away visiting her sister in Florida for the last month. Okay? That's your neighbor. She does not like dogs. She hates them. She likes cats. She's in a wheelchair. We get the hypothetical? Now, because you're a paranoid sort, you've got a 14-foot wall around your house your precious toy poodle and someone has come into your house and stolen your toy poodle and because you're paranoid you got cameras and on the camera you can see that person climbing up that fence hopping down grabbing your toy poodle climbing back over that fence and leaving and that happened yesterday 
Now you call the police and you accuse that neighbor lady who doesn't like dogs. Did she have the means to perform that act? Wheelchair-bound lady, is she going to climb a 14-foot fence? Not a chance, right? She can't stand up on her own. She can't climb a 14-foot fence. She didn't have the means. Did she have a motive for kidnapping a dog? I mean, the dog had no value. You ain't going to sell the thing. Only you love it. It's ugly as sin, right? And she don't like dogs. She No, she, it's not even something she'd want. How about opportunity? She'd been gone for a month. She'd been in Florida. She didn't even have a chance. Do you think the police are going to go arrest her? No. Right? They say, no, you, 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 you're, you're, that's a ludicrous assertion. How do you think they'd look if you accused her of doing it six months after she died? She's dead. She's been dead for six months. You think that she, the dead lady, climbed over your fence and took your dog? We got to go somewhere else. You're a nut. <laughs> okay. And yet many people will teach that you have the ability to choose God. Means. How did it describe being in trespasses and sins? Dead. Dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. In that condition, you have zero spiritual life. Zero ability to see the kingdom of heaven. To hear his words. You have zero ability to believe on him. You have no, nothing that you can do to reach out to God. In that state, you're just flesh. Carnal. You're just meat. Romans chapter 8 and verse 6 says that in your carnal mind, you're at enmity. With God, for to be carnally minded is death. That's the one I want. For to be carnally minded is death. Okay? You can't please God. You can't hear. You can't believe. You can't do anything. <coughs> In your carnal mind, you have no means, no ability. Okay? You think, well, well, sure I do. I, I can do it. Well, you're just making stuff up. That's not what Scripture says. Who, who seeks after God on their own, naturally? None. No, not one. There's none that seeketh after Him. That's back in, what, Romans 3? Romans 3, verse 10. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. Do you understand? No. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together, become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. Means, you ain't got it. You cannot choose God because in that state, you're dead. You lack power. You're just as weak as the old dead lady who hates dogs to come and scale that fence. Motive. She hates dogs. Would she go steal a dog? No, she loves cats. Would you choose God in a state where you hate God? No. Our carnal mind says, no, I don't hate God. Yeah. Naturally, you do. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. But the carnal mind is enmity against God. Enmity. That is a strong form of hatred. Warfare, 
The root word in that is enemy. You are God's enemy by nature. God chose enemies to love. How often do you choose your enemies to love? Jesus told us to. Are we real good at it? No, we're not, because they're our enemies. And our carnal mind rebels against that idea. You would not have the motive to choose God. You're openly hostile, totally corrupt, and completely estranged. Right? This is why total depravity is so important. If you don't understand that basic foundation, then you can't understand how great it is that God loved you anyway and how you're not capable of being involved in this situation. You don't have the ability. You don't have the motive. You're not seeking after God. Who seeks after God? No, not one. All right? No ability to choose God. No motive to choose God. Did you ever even have an opportunity? When did this choice take place? For the foundation world. You were on the scene, buddy. What did Job have to say? When you know, I want to argue with God. And God said, uh, where were you? Can you explain to me how I did all this? Where were you? Where were you? You weren't there. The decision had been made. If you read Scripture and you believe Scripture, and we do, there was a choice made, but it weren't by you. You weren't there, and even if you were, you wouldn't want it, and even if you did want it, you had no ability to do it. You had no means, no motive, and no opportunity. Okay? Who did have the means, motive, and opportunity? God! The means, the ability. Who has all power? Who has all knowledge? Who is holy? Who is able to choose an enemy and to be able to pay their debt? Even if you love somebody who is your enemy, could you pay for their sins? Do you have anything to offer? No, you don't have the means. God offered himself, his own son, to buy his enemies from their rightful wrath and judgment to be adopted into his family. He had the ability. He had the means. He's the only one that did. That's why when Jesus tells you to love your enemies, he's telling you, be conformed to me. Be conformed to my image. This is something that God does. And unless God's involved in your life already because he's put himself there, I'll do that. You have the means? Yeah. Did he have the motive? Yeah, it said he was performing his will. It was his desire. Show wrath on whom he will and to show mercy on whom, is, on whom he will. Opportunity. Yeah, he had the opportunity. He was there. He's eternal. He was there before the world began. You and I weren't. God's the only one who fits those. He made a choice. God is the acting party in our salvation. We're passive. We, we get the benefit of it. But he's the one who is acting. All right. Anybody ever seen a semi-truck hauling a trailer? I hope so. All right. They're everywhere. Start driving. They're everywhere. Be careful. <laughs> if you had a semi sign and the trailer on the back said, I'm pushing as hard as I can. Well, what would you think about that trailer? Well, that's ridiculous. 
Obviously, the trailer is not pushing. It has no power on its own. The power unit, that's what we in the industry call the truck, the power unit's got the engine, it's got the electricity that go, connects up to it and you know, makes the taillights blink and the, uh, the brakes work, right? Is a trailer ever going to push the truck? No. Even if it has a sign on it that says, this is what I'm doing, it's wrong. <laughs> and so we as trailers here can say, I choose you, God. It doesn't make it so. Unless that truck backs up to that trailer and hooks up those lines, it ain't going anywhere. Right? But I love the Lord. Yeah, that's like having the taillights come on. If the Lord's not already loving you, it's hadn't already plugged into you and loved you first, there ain't going to be any illumination. The taillights don't make you loved. It's a sign that you are loved. And you're living it out. Do you love God today? Good! Excellent! Do you know why? Because He first loved you! And we love that verse. That's, that's 1 John 4, 19. We love Him because He first loved us. I rest my case. <laughs> he loved us first. Not because he looked downtown and said, oh, that one's worthy. No, he knew we weren't worthy. So let your taillight so shine <laughs> that he loved you first. And so love others, right? It's the, it's the consequence of that love. It's not the cause. Doesn't mean, you know, put blinders on your taillights. Let them shine. God chose a people to put his love upon. And he's been loving them ever since. And he will love them for forever. He knew what they were. Totally corrupt. Estranged from him by their own nature as being sinners. He knew what they were. He knew what you were. He knew what I was. And yet he still placed his love upon them and said, I'm going to do what it takes to make them worthy to be with me. To be in my family, to be holy and without blame before him in love. And what did that take? That took the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, of God himself coming down and laying down his life to redeem his people, to pay for their sins so that when he rose from the grave, it was finished and there was nothing more to do as far as God's made this way possible. He's the one who designed it. He chose the people. He knew it was going to happen. The son was obedient to it. He came and fulfilled it. And at some point in each of your lives and of all the lives of his people, they're going to be made aware of it on some level. They may never hear the gospel in all of its beauty and glory. That light may not be shining in their life, but it's still his people and he is still going to pull them out of darkness and into his light by that regeneration, by that new life. And he is going to, one day, have them fully conform to the image of his son. They will be with him in glory. Well, that's where you die now and you're waiting for the resurrection and your body's later going to be reunited with your, your soul and your spirit and in heaven. That's what we're looking forward to. But who gets all the credit in it? God alone. And when we try to say, well, God, you did great. And if you hadn't had my little help on this little piece right here, you couldn't have done it. It's like that trailer saying, I'm pushing as hard as I can. If I weren't pushing, you couldn't do it. Nope. It's foolish. 
He gives them eternal life. This is that same people He gave to His Son. And guess what? This number doesn't grow and shrink. It's constant. It's an unchanging God with an unchanging love who's promised never to leave you or forsake you. He loves you. And there's no sin that you can do now that's going to stop Him from loving you. Now in His love, He may chasten you and discipline you and teach you so that you'll stop and that you'll live a life that glorifies Him more. But He won't stop loving you. So who does God deliver from being totally corrupt and estranged? His people. His people that are occupied out of every nation, kindred, tribe, tongue, doesn't matter what color, doesn't matter the shape of your face, any characteristic that you want to think of, he's got his people. That he has chosen out of the world and he's put his love upon them before the world started spinning. And that love has not changed. And he has prepared those people to be worthy to be with him. And the cost of doing that was great. This is what we mean when we talk about election. A lot of people hate that word. It means God chose. He chose a people for himself. Out of his own will. Not because they were so great or worthy. But in spite of the fact that they were still sinners and unworthy. He decided he was going to show his mercy on some. And he was going to show his wrath on others. And you know what? He's still holy. And righteous to do that. He is the sovereign God. And that's, if we talk about the sovereignty of God's will. It means he has the right. To make those calls. Those distinctions. And you and I can't argue with him. Nor accuse him of being unrighteous. That is not our place. We're the creatures. He is the creator. Okay. He chose them. And he continues to love them. And he predetermined, he set out in advance that they are going to be conformed to the image of his son. It's not just I choose them and I hope they turn out all right. He is going to do what it takes to ensure that every single one of his people end up exactly where they need to be, which is with him, glorifying him all the days for eternity, rejoicing in what Christ has done and accomplished, which was the Father's will. Are you extremely blessed? Yes, are all of His people extremely blessed? Do we have something to rejoice in today? Absolutely. Is this something that people don't like to hear about? Yeah, but is it true? Should we hide it under a bushel? Should we be a, you know, militant and dogmatic and I'm going to teach you the truth whether I knock your teeth out or not? No. But don't be ashamed of it either. Speak the truth in love. Who gets more credit? God! God is a great Savior. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. That's right. We get to rejoice in that. There's a lot of comfort and stability in knowing the truth of this doctrine. I hope you're hungry for the truth. Am I teaching a doctrine this week, next week, and probably three or four weeks to come? Yes! Learn it! Internalize it! Don't just, well, you should talk to my preacher. He's got some good things to say. 
That's fine. Have him talk to me. But you talk to him too! Because these should be real to you because they matter to you. If you can sink your teeth into these truths, these will change your life. It doesn't change what God's done, but it can change your appreciation for it. And all the swells and things in this world that seem so scary, you'll realize are barely little puddles that lap at your toenails. Because of the all things that he's worked together, look at the big picture constellation of what he's done through time before it even started. It's going to continue on for forever. Look what he's done. What can you do against me, world? You don't even have to talk to Satan. You know, Jesus' line was, get thee behind me. That's not your line. Just look at your Lord. Look what he's done. Who can stand against? Same number, 325. 325. My Lord, I did not choose you. For that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. You took the sin that stained me. You cleansed me and made me new. Of old you have ordained me that I should live in you. 325. My Lord, 